Hi. <laughs> you can say it right back. Can I smile? Yeah. I feel smile. like your voice sounds different when you smile, right? Okay. Hi, I'm Aruna Dutt, and I'm the Globe's Associate Arts Editor. I'm filling in today for Manika, and this is The Decibel. You may know Roly Pemberton by his stage name, Cadence Weapon. He's the Edmonton-born rapper who won the Polaris Music Prize last year. He was his hometown's poet laureate, and now he's published a memoir. It's called Bedroom Rapper. Today, Roly and I are going to talk about his unique perspective on the Canadian music industry. From his experiences with a record contract that he could barely live off of, to the meaning behind the lyrics on his latest album, to what it's been like to get in front of an audience again after two years of online performances. You know, I just really had like an entire creative renaissance during the pandemic that was really unexpected. You're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Hi, Roly. Thanks for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. To start off, can you tell us the story of your artist name, Cadence Weapon? Yeah, so the way I became Cadence Weapon. So back in the day, I used to freestyle a lot, and I would have this uh, repeating theme that would come up, this kind of mantra that was like, my cadence is my weapon, my cadence is my weapon. And, you know, it became this thing where it's this idea of like music is a weapon for change. And as of today, you've released five albums, you've toured and performed hundreds of shows. To me, it feels like you've still carried that sentiment with you, especially with your album from the last year called Parallel World. Yeah, with uh, Parallel World, uh, I was heavily influenced by uh, George Floyd's murder. Basically, the protest that came from that, it really showed me the value of um, organized collective movement. I'd never really seen successful protest movement before i was really just amazed to see what came from that which was like seeing like the mainstream media talking about things like oh like institutional racism or structural racism or like microaggressions or things like this like that you know i always knew as like a black person but uh, i'd never seen reflected in the media before you know and that really got me thinking like okay it's like you know why don't i just rap about this for a whole album do you mind if we play a short clip from one of your songs called Africa Bill's Revenge? Oh, you should just play the whole album. Africa Bill is back, Amber Valley back, Hogan's Alley back, back in black, back in black, black is back, black is back. What is the significance of listing these places in Canada? Yeah, well, you know, the, the idea of uh, that song, uh, Africville's Revenge, you know, it's talking about uh, disenfranchised places uh, in Canada that were largely either just black communities or primarily people of color, places that have not really been significantly covered, you know, especially when I was a kid going to school, like, I'd never heard of Africville, I'd never heard of Amber Valley, like, or Hogan's Alley, you know, I'd never heard of any of this stuff. And it was only when I started doing my own research and actually specifically as a part of this uh, article that I wrote for Hazlitt about Little Jamaica, because, you know, I was living on Eglinton for the past few years and I saw just the, um, you know, the transit-based gentrification that was happening there, you know, and I started doing all this research and like thinking about other examples of that and how like Africville, it's been turned into like a, a highway off-ramp, you know, and then like how there's like this connection between gentrification and, you know, how, how they're targeting certain communities for it. 
It's called Africville's Revenge. What does the revenge part of the song mean? Yeah, well, for me, it's, you know, anytime a black person is doing well in Canada, that's Africville's Revenge. I feel like the song in itself is Africville's Revenge because it's always reminding people of this community that was just brutally disenfranchised, uh, wiped off the face of the earth. You know, they were not given services by the city of Halifax. But yeah, that's Africville's Revenge. Is uh, I am Africville's Revenge, ultimately. Because you're doing well. And now you've, you've published a book. You are doing well. It's described as a collection of stories and essays that pay tribute to the Canadian music scenes that you've been through over the years in your career. But it's also much more than that. What was the message you were trying to deliver by writing about your experiences? Well, I felt like for myself, you know, just growing up in Canada, being from Edmonton originally and being a, a black person from Edmonton, you know, there aren't a lot of examples of somebody with my perspective being given that kind of platform to write a book. But, you know, I feel like I, I, for me, whenever I'm creating something, like I want to do something that uh, only I could do. You know, and I felt like this was a book that only I could write. It's really based on my personal experiences, like whether it's as, a, you know, growing up as like a young black kid in Edmonton who wants to be a rapper and who, against all odds, just, could, you know, through rapping on message boards online and, and taking that to getting a record deal and like touring around the world and playing Glastonbury and all this stuff to, you know, being a part of the, this underground music scene in Montreal and like living down the street from Grimes and just making all this weird music like I I just felt like it was a story that needed to be told. I'm going to quote you here from the book. If you weren't doing something that was already accepted somewhere in the States, there wasn't really context for you in my country. You could be weird or you could be black, but you couldn't be both and be successful rapping in Canada. What is it about the system here in Canada that makes it difficult to be an artist? Yeah, I feel like in Canada, we can be a little bit behind the times when it comes to certain things, especially when it comes to rap and stuff. I feel like we're often like a few years behind, especially in the mainstream. You know, in America, there's a lane for just kind of like uh, left of center rap artists and, let you know, black celebrities or whatever who are doing things that aren't what you would expect. And in Canada, it was just like kind of me just creating this lane for myself. And it was just like a very lonely experience, you know. So do you think you can be a working artist and make it big in Canada? Or do you need to make it big in the U.S. first? You know, historically, Canadians have this uh, self-loathing quality to them where, you know, they don't want to celebrate their greatest artists. They don't want to celebrate their own Canadian artists who have done really well. Uh, until they've been celebrated by the Americans or by the UK or some other countries. But the same thing happened to Drake. It wasn't until he got the co-sign from some American artists. You know, it's like we are always the last people to see what's right in front of us. Ironically, these are the things that have given Canada an outsized place in the world's cultural imagination is, you know, an artist like Drake or, you know, Jim Carrey or people like that. But, you know, within our own country, it's like we, we don't get the same level of support, even just like on a, you know, I, I think I compared myself like maybe to somebody like Kid Cudi in America. Like, it's also just a numbers thing where it's like, you know, there's just significantly more people in America, more people who get it, more people who are open to different ideas. Let's go back to your story. As a teenager, you 
signed a contract with Upper Class Records in 2005. At first, how did this impact your career? Uh, at first, it was a really big thing for me, like, you know, just coming from Edmonton, you know, there's no music infrastructure there. There are only a bunch of small indie labels. I got discovered by this label from having my song on like a blog, you know, like it was just like a purely Internet based thing. And, you know, yeah, they wanted to manage me. They wanted to sign me. And it just seemed like really a dream come true. It seemed like a really great opportunity for people to finally hear my music. And at first it was. And then how did you figure out something just wasn't right there with your contract? It was an incremental thing where it's kind of like, okay, there's this idea that there are certain expenses that go into putting out a record. You know, you got to, you know, got to pay for PR, you got to pay for travel and lodging and, you know, you got to pay for the records to be made, like whether it's recorded or actually being produced. But, you know, all that information was kept from me. I never knew where the money was going or like what, what it was going towards. And the idea was just like, basically, I just had to keep going and eventually it would balance out. When you're in it, it's really hard to look outside of it. You know, I'd be touring Europe and I'm playing like these huge festivals and it's, you know, it seems like I'm living this artistic dream, but it's like the money is not going to me. And then I'm like assuming it's like, okay, so is it, are they paying for the flights with this? And like, they aren't explaining it to me. And then it's just this thing where it's like a decade goes by and it's kind of like I never made any money off of like these records or any of this this whole time. Like, how is that possible? What is it like to play with on the same stage as names like Diplo and Most Def and then come home and realize you don't have enough money to get by or like afford certain things? Well, it was very a uh, shameful feeling, very embarrassing feeling. Like it was kind of like, wow, I must have done something wrong or it's like my fault. I always blame myself, you know, it was just like I didn't know that what was happening was like not normal, you know, for the for the music industry. You know, once I started talking to other artists, that was the thing that kind of made me feel like, OK, like maybe this is something I need to really look into. But it was just it was just really weird because it was like I had so little downtime. Like it wasn't like. You know, like, yeah, I'd go play, like, I'd be in England playing with, like, most Def, but it's like, I would go home for, like, one day, and then I'd be, like, touring North America for, like, two months. It's baked into the music industry. From from the very beginning of the music industry, it's an extractive industry. Nowadays, it's, like, even more blatant, because they'll sign you off of, like, having one, like, popular, like, TikTok, you know, and people are, like, so blinded by the idea. It's like, okay, I'm going to become really famous. And that becomes the end game rather than like, do I own my masters? Like, I feel like signing to certain labels too, it doesn't become this thing where it's like, oh, like we want to make sure you have a good long-term career. It's about extracting as much from you in as short a period of time and then disposing of you after. So when you were finally released from your contract or ghosted is more the term that you would use, what was it like to work without management or an agent? guiding you for a little bit? Uh, well, it was really scary because I didn't know what I was doing at all. I just had to learn every aspect of being in the music industry without any help. And I just had to do it all by myself. And I didn't have a record label. I didn't have a manager. I didn't have a booking agent. I didn't have PR. I didn't have just any distribution. I didn't have just any support at all. Right. I had to learn how to do all this stuff. So I got into this thing where I was like, OK, I'm going to like reach out to labels myself, find studios myself and find producers who like I can new new artists to work with. And, you know, I'm going to get my own press photos made and I'm going to get my own music videos made and like doing all this stuff and paying for it all myself, you know, and 
just like really taking DIY to like the furthest extent that I ever imagined. And then having it actually work out was was very gratifying. And last year, you finally won the Polaris Prize. Um, Finally. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) A $50,000 win. What was that like? I mean, it was incredibly gratifying, you know, just from where I came from, you know, all the ups and downs of my career to get back to the point where I could even be considered for an award was already like a huge win for me. But to actually win it, and especially for that album, uh, it was extremely meaningful for me. You know, because it was like, this is the kind of thing that when I was first starting out in the Canadian music industry, basically to have a record that is, you know, focuses on black Canadian history and to not only succeed from that, but literally win the Players Prize. You know, it's something that I didn't think was would have been possible, you know, in like 2005. Hearing how, about how difficult it can be even pre-pandemic to survive as an artist makes me want to ask you what you saw and experienced when the pandemic hit and touring and travel and venues that support your music all shut down. Yeah, I mean, it was very frustrating because I felt like I had developed all this momentum after, you know, I hadn't put out an album for like six years. And then like when it was really amping up again, it was just like, boom, everything's gone. But what ended up happening was it allowed me to kind of reset my artistry and just really figure out how I wanted to go forward with everything. Like, let me figure out, you know, some of these new platforms, you know, it's like, so I started a TikTok, you know, like I... I started my newsletter, my Substack, which you know has been like this really great outlet for just different ideas or just explaining aspects of my music in a way that I never would have imagined I, I could do before. You know, I, I started Twitch and I started like uh, streaming and DJing for my fans and stuff. It was just like finding new ways to connect with people, especially in a time where everyone is like lacking connection. You know, I just really had like an entire creative renaissance during the pandemic that was really unexpected between all those new platforms, but also writing this book and then recording Parallel World. Like, that's the crazy thing is I did those both at the same time. By day, I would just get up really early, get a big glass of water, start working on the book. And then at night, I'd be in the studio working on the record. I was expecting to hear that a lot was lost between that time, but it seems like a lot was gained as well. What does it mean to now be connecting with the crowd again? It means everything. I feel like that's what we wanted the most, you know, when we when, when it was like deep in the kind of like the Zoom era where it's like, oh, let's hang out on Zoom. Like there's nothing worse than that. That was like terrible moment. Like, I mean, it's like it worked for the time. But it was this idea of like, let's hang out. Oh, let's have drinks on Zoom. It's or, not the same. Or, or I'm going to watch this show. Like I did a bunch of virtual performances and I was just like, oh, there's just no connection. You know, and it's like just getting back to a place where I can have that interpersonal connection and I can like look into people's eyes and really like, you know, share something in a real way. It makes it the, the time when I couldn't do it, you know, it makes it all worth it. You have done some shows recently, right? And have you had any encounters, like little stories from them that that stand out? I just did a couple shows with July Talk in uh, Alberta, and that was really fun because they were just like huge shows, <laughs> like thousands of people. And it was really nice to go back home. Like in Edmonton, we played at the Jubilee, and you know I had everybody take their cell phones out um, during my song On Me, which is all about like 
surveillance. CCTV got eyes on me, they're finding me. Bright lights look right on me, no privacy. Fine print, but they're lying. Having everybody waving the phones and just seeing like this ocean of phones, you know, it's like I have not been able to do that for so long. It, it, it's something I'll never forget. Thanks for coming on the show, really. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for today. I'm the Globe's Associate Arts Editor, Aruna Dutt. Michal Stein edited this episode. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thank you for listening. <laughs>